I'm Alan. And I'm Anya. And this is the Shadows and Shamblers mailbag episode. We wish we had our full episode to share with you this week, but we lost access to our screeners because of the leak. Uh, And so we really want to make sure that our episode is uh, the same quality that you guys are used to. Um, So... Unfortunately, it's just going to take us a little bit longer since we'll be watching it for the first time uh, with you guys on Sunday. And also, uh, I'm out of town right now, actually, so if I sound a little bit different, it's because I'm using my smaller, lighter microphone uh, that travels a little bit better. It's like old school when we first started the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So this (laughs) throwback to season one recording. (laughs) But we thought with this episode, we would get to some of the feedback that we've been letting pile up, honestly, like all season. We just haven't even been talking back to you guys. But um, we do really appreciate everybody who's taken the time to live tweet with us and to give us feedback on each episode, to send us emails. Um, Yeah, we're just going to dig right into it. Um, For episode one, The House on the Rock, Kate at I Do Human Things on Twitter uh, wrote back a comment to us in the podcast we were kind of speculating like why isn't Sweeney allowed to go on the carousel and go backstage like is it because he's a leprechaun is it because he doesn't have his coin does Wednesday just hate him now like what's going on and the gin wasn't allowed backstage either uh, exactly right he was like the gatekeeper yeah he was there and he was working for Wednesday but it was like you don't get to take a ride that's kind of what Kate was saying. Like it, it does say, she says it does say something about uh, Jin and sweetie that they don't just go play on the new gods team, which might have a less formal hierarchy as the team has had far less time to fall into old ways. Like in other words, like why don't Jin and Sweeney or any of these other people who work for Wednesday who are kind of pissed off at him, why don't they switch teams since like maybe they would have a better chance for advancement? I think in general, we've seen less this season from the new gods uh, than we got from them in season one. Aside from uh, the episode where new media takes over from Technical Boy who gets retired um, it's really only just like a couple snippets here and there. And we we have like speculated the whole season. It feels like are they going to try and get Laura now? Are they going to do this? And like I feel like all the ideas that we have or like Kate has here are like more interesting than the way they're using the new gods. They're just like ominous and <laughs> but like nothing happens. But on the other hand, I think what they're doing with Team Old Gods is kind of interesting enough that I almost don't care. Do you think that the Jin would ever switch teams? Like, he he is definitely pissed at Wednesday, it seems like, when he's talking to Salim. Yeah, but I I don't know. I can't see the Jin switching teams. Um, as much as he doesn't like Wednesday, I think he's just like, he always talks about, you know, like how old he is and like his city thousands of years ago and all of that. Like, I just, I can't see him getting on team new gods. Uh, I think he knows that Mr. World wouldn't be any better of a leader or give him any more freedom than Wednesday does. Plus he can't, right? Because Wednesday, uh, this is the season where we find out 
how Wednesday owns his loyalty, which is basically like he has the necklace. Did I make that up? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if the new gods have their own gin, and that's like where you know, like Aladdin and the genie, like Disney movie comes oh. from. Oh. <laughs> like, we have Will Smith. What? What do you got? <laughs> For episode two, we got some feedback from uh, at Far Flung Hope on Twitter. Um, this was during the live tweet, I think, when we had uh, Young Shadow in the church at his mother's funeral, and she asked, uh, is this the last time that Shadow believed in something? And I think we talked about this on the podcast a little bit. I was wondering if you still felt the same way that you said that that's like the moment that he does start to believe, and I said that's the moment where he kind of shuts off. Like, do you, do you uh, feel that way still? That's a really tough and interesting question. I kind of feel like from the cinematography itself, it's showing a moment of belief, or at least a moment where he's like trying really hard to believe. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a moment of desperation. I don't think that the show really gives us enough information to know like how successful that effort is i guess i think yeah i think i could see the argument either way yeah like is does he actually believe or is he just trying to make himself believe is what you're saying yeah exactly Interesting. Um, and i don't know if we can really tell i mean and so like we see that moment and then the next time we see him chronologically is when he meets Laura in the casino. Mm -hmm. And so like, that's a big gap to kind of fill in. I'm thinking back to that scene from season one where he and Laura are in bed together. Do you believe in the afterlife? I don't know. I mean, my mom did. She seemed pretty sure. She used to say, uh, all I know is there's more than I know. I think that might sound wiser than it is. Wow, okay, wise ass. So you know what happens after you die? Yes, I do. Okay, what? You rot. When you die, you rot. I kind of feel like Shadow has maybe for his whole life just been stuck in this sort of like agnostic liminal space between believing and not believing. And, like, maybe that's why Wednesday chose him, because Mm -hmm. he was, like, agnostic and, like, on the fence enough to be moldable, but also, like, had enough potential to believe, as opposed to someone who, you know, is, like, firmly a non-believer. And in that case, he would be, like, believing that there is something or some kind of afterlife so that his mom is not totally, really all the way dead right right he's not super into the religious dogma or like Mm -hmm. a specific path but he like definitely is open to the possibility that like there's something supernatural out there oh poor puppy yeah poor shadow when i was going through the the live tweet stuff um genie uh, at oblandada on twitter had this really interesting question for that same episode Um, is belief something that is deserved or does that contradict the very principle of believing kind of this idea that like 
if someone is just like absolutely 100% trustworthy, is that really trust and faith in them? Or like, you know what I mean? Like, I think I kind of see what you're saying that basically like, if there's enough evidence that a belief is completely earned logically, then it's not a belief. It's just a fact kind of mm-hmm. kind of what you were just saying like shadow is kind of making himself he like he wants to believe when he's in that church like i mm-hmm. i want i want you to be there god i want her to still i want her to be in heaven with you i want you know and like really reaching for that in that moment of desperation yeah i don't know like it was it was an interesting question i've thought about it a lot since since that tweet and like I don't know, it's like it's fun to play with. I don't know if I have like any good answers or if the show's super interested in it. But and speaking of the live tweets, I wanted to give a shout out to um, Queen Boo, who is always really sweet to us on Twitter for our episode three live tweet. Um, she said, "I I love your live tweets uh, every week," and I was like, "Oh, that's so nice. Thank you." That's so nice that you do that, Alan. Thank you. <laughs> it's fun to do i appreciate everybody who shows up for it there's always like you know three or four people each week it's not always the same people because not everybody can make it but i usually spend sunday night panicking about work for monday so (laughs) one of us has to hold down the fort (laughs) right right i'm usually also scrambling with last minute edits or making show notes at the same time like so uh, one of the people who showed up for that episode three that week was Kate at K8MET on Twitter. That was the episode where like they went to go kill Argus. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I loved that pairing of um, Wednesday and Laura, like the how the two of them were like playing off of each other and the ways that they were talking about Shadow and kind of fighting over him and stuff. I said something in the in the tweet about how they both want shadow uh, for themselves, but they don't want the same shadow. And she responded to that with, which one wants the real shadow? Is it even either of them? Like, what do you think of that? Like, first of all, like, is my premise even correct? Like, I think they're definitely fighting over shadow, but do they each want different versions of him? And, and what do you think about like her question and all of that? I think they definitely want different shadows, right? Laura wants the old shadow, a kind of ordinary doting boyfriend who's like just adventurous enough to go along with her schemes. I guess they both want him as their support. But like we said, Wednesday's more interested in him as basically like a power source, the faith battery. Whereas I think Laura's more interested in, like, having a connection with him. So in terms of, like, which one of those versions of him is the real shadow, I think the shadow that Laura wants is the old shadow that doesn't exist anymore. And, like, can't exist anymore. I don't know if he's capable of giving her the shadow that she wants, nor, like, should he necessarily be willing to give that to her because she clearly doesn't deserve it. But obviously, I don't think Wednesday really deserves Shadow either. Although, you know, it's it's been interesting to see this season Shadow getting more empowered and taking more agency. And so, like, to some extent, maybe Shadow is kind of growing into 
that when I don't know, does Wednesday want him to be more empowered and like having more agency, or does he just want a puppet face battery? It's not it's not quite clear to me exactly what Wednesday wants at this point. I feel like when Shadows steps up to Sweeney at the end of episode seven, like that's exactly where Wednesday wants him. Ready to kill Sweeney for him. Yeah. To like to be his guy on the front line with the weapon that like directly gives him power. Yeah, and like just autonomous enough to like be badass. Mm-hmm, but not mm-hmm. so autonomous that he starts like second guessing Wednesday himself. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about you're saying that this whole thing that they kind of want the same thing from Shadow and and um, in that episode, like Wednesday is telling Laura like you're just selfish and this is more selfishness from you and it's like the pot calling the kettle black right there right like oh yeah for sure (laughs) yeah they both want him to be like their doting side piece i don't think that's what we're supposed to want for shadow like oh no absolutely not it's certainly not what his mom wants for him i was talking about that scene with my mom uh during easter and uh i can't believe i just gave you that segue without even trying (laughs) (laughs) i i hope she doesn't mind me talking about this on the show but she was like she was confused and i've been kind of like looking around online at like people's reactions to this season and honestly like i see a lot of confusion Mm -hmm. uh you know what are people's motivations supposed to be i don't understand why any of this is happening but um she was really confused by that particular scene where they come up like an elevator and then they're like in a big grassy field and there's that cow there and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was like, who, why are there dead people there? And then suddenly there's a cow and like, I don't understand what's happening at all. I was confused. I usually Did you catch it. <laughs> no, I usually just ignore the parts that confuse me and focus on the parts that I understand. <laughs> and then we talk enough about those or sometimes you just in the document i'm like oh wait laura and sweeney did have sex together i just stopped paying attention (laughs) interesting choice old school fuck are we we a field well memory of a field is he dead Oh, deader than you. What do you come back for, anyway? Who is he? That's an old version of Argos. A cast-off husk. After he changed into something else. And basically, that scene when they come up in the grassy field in the elevator is just the myth that Ibis talks about in that little sequence about like Zeus cheated on his wife with a human woman. Zeus is like, well, how do you know I had sex with her? And then she's like, Argus told me. And then Zeus is like, Argus, come here. And then he kills him. And he's like, that's what snitches get stitches, fool. Um, I think that's what Zeus said in Mm -hmm, the original Homer. Yeah. Maybe they just felt like after Chernabog spent so much of season one talking about cow killing that they needed to actually just <laughs> give us some cow killing. <laughs> like, <laughs> release the tension. I know you've been waiting for this for two years. 
So some feedback that we got on episode four, which was the one where the technical boy appears from the uh, organ music and the Bach music and the imagination of the little boy who plays Pong and all that stuff, if you remember. Kelly, uh, at Glazebook Girl on Twitter, she said, there is also something being said about technology using the arts to be born. Tech Boy was born through the worship of people in a church listening to AI music at a funeral of a man who worshiped the old artists. Tech Boy born on the bones of old media? I don't know. And like a thinky face. And it, it made me think too of when media is trying to like be reborn and she's asking like in Times Square, like what is art? Oh yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And like this connection they're drawing between art and the new gods kind of the American obsession with entertainment and technology, but also like art and deeper meaning, like, you know, like nerdy people doing podcasts about TV shows and trying (laughs) to find deep meaning in them and stuff like that. Yeah, I love Kelly's point. It is interesting how, you know, the show is presenting this dichotomy between the old gods and the new gods, but there is, you know, that continuity and that they're both created from the same human urges and like human needs and they're still kind of like fulfilling that same niche that's like you know our brain like needs something to like fixate on and express ourselves through but it also like it makes you wonder like were there new gods in box time like like what did the was there like a technical boy 16, uh. 1600s version uh-huh, <laughs> that just uh-huh. like like some of the old gods actually persist over time and remain old gods and then we're just like cycling through new gods some of whom stick around old enough to become old gods and some <laughs> of which you know disappear and become obsolete and are replaced by new new gods yeah like there was probably like a god of the railroads but exactly who, yeah yeah And now that person is like still around, but like way less relevant. Yeah. I mean, even the old gods had to be new at some point, right? It seems like the difference is that there's kind of like this literal mythology, this story around these old gods. And that uh, is a way for them to persist because then at least they can be remembered, you know, like Mm -hmm. the way that Thor is remembered or Odin or Mamaji, you know, Kali. So to me, the main distinction is actually, like, the old gods seem to be worshipped on purpose, where the new gods seem to be worshipped accidentally. And, like, the old gods have actual names as, like, a sense of identity, whereas the new gods are more, like, conceptual. Mm, mm -hmm, And, mm -hmm. And their names are just, like, nouns. Although, I mean, like, we saw Technical Boy in the 30s, So Mm -hmm. he couldn't actually have been born. It seems like that's like, if it's not his birth, then it's like the first time he manifests himself to that particular human, you know, like they form a relationship. And I I like that he's older than that, right? Because... Me too. Technology is pre-pong for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Uh... We had a cool interaction during the live tweet for episode five, The Ways of the Dead, where genie on uh, on twitter during the live tweet made this um great point about salim and the jinn 
you know, like having this conflict over Salim insisting on being a monotheist despite being in the universe of American gods. And he said, uh, Salim says, your truth is not my truth. Salim understands faith in a completely different and deeper way than the gods do. And it's a way the gods belittle, despite the fact it's also what sustains them. Stay strong in your truth, Salim. And then Musa Kresh uh, responded, I'll break him. That was so fun. I love how much the cast is willing to like get in there during the live tweets and like respond to all the fans. It, it makes those live tweets a lot of fun. <laughs> of course he did. And speaking of Musa, there was um, a really cool interview that friend of the show, Janita Davis, did with him. And it's pretty cool to like see his kind of personal, like the way that he approaches the djinn uh, as an actor. And one of the coolest little details that he put in there was um, he said that if you'll remember back to uh, episode three of season one, when Jin and Salim meet, um, Salim says in the cab that his grandmother met a djinn and that's how he heard the story of the djinn was, mm-hmm. was like grandma telling him about it. And he said that um, in his conceptualization of the character, that's not a coincidence that there's oh. like history. And I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. And that he can um, like sense that about Salim mm-hmm. when they're in mm-hmm. the cab together. Mm-hmm. That there's like some kind of familial link to that family for him like a guardian spirit or something. Whoa. Um, yeah, it was cool. I was like, wow. So I think everybody should definitely check out Janita's uh, interview that she did with Musa. It was a lot of fun. And uh, there'll be a link in the show notes to that. And speaking of that, like in the in the same episode, Janita jumped into, uh, into our mentions. One of my favorite things to do during the live tweet is to take the ideas um, and concepts that you have in the podcast and then present them as my own. Uh, I mean, to be fair, you are just tweeting it under the show account, so (laughs) maybe people don't know who's typing. (laughs) (laughs) I I made your point that um, at the end of the day, like Salim and the Jinn can get past their differences and uh, remain a couple. And that's one of the cool things about them. And Janita responded to that. And she said, uh, theirs is a real love of respect and care. It's actually groundbreaking and deserves more attention, which I completely agree with. Yeah, it's interesting too, right? Because last season, season one, you know, they had that like epic groundbreaking sex scene. And they did get a lot of attention from that you know, both in the press, and then I think, didn't the show win, like, a GLAAD award or something? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that's Um, right. So, it's just, it's interesting to me that they got all this attention for, like, the physical sex scene, and they're getting less attention to the relationship now that it's, uh, it's more just, like, the more emotional and ongoing relationship aspect of it. I can see the argument that, like, well, we've actually had more portrayals of of like intimate emotionally intimate gay relationships and so the actual physical sex is uh you know more of a frontier in terms of what people are willing to put on tv or not Um, Mm -hmm. 
I agree with Janita. I wish that relationship um, was getting a little bit more attention. Uh, so Kate at I Do Human Things uh, had some thoughts about uh, the Treasure of the Sun, episode seven. And, like she was very into like all the Celtic myth stuff and really wished that the show would go there more or maybe like return there next season. In the in the episode, Sweeney is revealed to be the god Lu. In the myth, that god has a son uh, who is like half human and half uh, God, kind of like um, Hercules. He's like the Irish Hercules. Um, that's literally like what scholars say about him. That is not me being. Oh, like, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is like the most common comparison made for that character. He's a, I, I can never say his name right. I, I'm always like real self-conscious about this. I think you say it Kukulin. Um, but he's basically just the same guy as his dad, like over again. He's like a really good fighter. He's really strong. He's really smart. And Kate would was interested if, you know, next season, like Sweeney shows back up, but it's not Sweeney this time. It's son of Sweeney. <laughs> it's um, uh, the Irish Hercules. Right. <laughs> Man. Well, I know the fans would appreciate that because I think the general response was people were super devastated uh, about Sweeney's demise uh, and even some people threatening to quit the show now that he is no longer going to be in it. No, that's like an overreaction. You gotta stick with Shadow. Like, <laughs> it's Shadow's story. She requests that in the off-season we read a, 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 an epic poem, a, an Irish epic poem that I can't even pronounce. I put it here in the show notes, but... um. You're not gonna, not gonna even attempt it. <laughs> I don't know. It's like the Tain Bo Kulang or something like that. Tain Bo Kulang. Tain Bo Kulang. Tain Bo Kulang. I have no idea. I've decided that I'm going to tell you a little bit about Irish legends. First legend I'm going to do is called the Tain Bo Kulang. Tain Bo Kulang. First legend I'm going to do is called the Tain Bo Kulang. So basically, what happened in Tain Bo Kulang? is once upon a time, there was a queen called Maeve. Maeve bet with her husband that she had more stuff than he did. So they counted all their stuff, and the king, her husband, actually had more stuff than she did because he had this totally hella rad super bitching cow. And Maeve wasn't very happy because she wanted more stuff than her husband. So she sent out her soldiers to find an even more hella rad super bitching cow. And they came back, and they told her about this Oh, ultra super rad, totally bitchin' mad fabulous cow up north. So she told them to try buy it. And they went up and they tried to buy it and Jermaine said no. So they killed everyone. The end. And I was like, absolutely not. We are not taking requests. <laughs> We're not. Uh, it's funny because I definitely, whenever I come up with a good podcast idea that I don't have time for, I'm always like texting Kate, like, "Hey, this is what this is your next project, BT Dubs." <laughs> <laughs> so it just makes sense that now she's returning the favor. <laughs> I definitely need more socks and monkey in my life, so they yeah. should do something. <laughs> we also um, got some feedback from uh, Joe Soliday on Twitter uh, at. Jossa Laddies, 
And all of the the Twitter handles will be in the show notes if you want to follow people. She said about our episode seven podcast um, that it was a fantastic conversation. And thank you. Um, And thank you for saying that. That was nice. Uh, It seems a tiny thing amid so much story writ large. But Mama G does a reverse comedy three beat with do you need direction, some sugar, some cream, um, and I really like that she pointed that out. Like she listened to your, um, to your three beat. Oh yeah. Idea, <laughs> and and she was like, uh, Mama G's whole pitch there. She has like that nice little three beat where she's but in reverse. It's yeah. the, like subversion, then the setup and reinforce. <laughs> <laughs> She does that with Wednesday, too. In another episode, she says, like, he's like, can I count on you to be there for the war? And she's like, you brought the fight to my doorstep. I have no choice but to resume the lopping of heads, drinking of blood and liberating of souls. That is if I can swap my weekend shift with Arjun. Oh, yeah. She's really funny. Mama G. Oh, she's great. Has yeah. that down. Yeah, and Sakina Jaffrey also uh, is, like, pretty active on Twitter. I mean, she's no Musa Kresh, but she's up there. And she loves the fans. Like, she tweets about Timeless all the time. She's very cool. And so now we have a long email from a longtime listener, H. Khan, who's at Spawn of Oz on Twitter. This is about episode five, The Ways of the Dead, but we wanted to to save it for the end because it's quite long and detailed and we thought it deserved uh, some prolonged reflection and response. Um, so he says, Hey guys, I took issue with the reference to an article written by someone who appeared to be denouncing 12 years a slave. My first problem with it was that the woman who wrote it claimed she was tired of seeing slavery films and was irate that Hollywood hadn't widened its representation of the African-American experience and therefore needed to move beyond such depictions. While I cannot argue against Hollywood needing to do a better job presenting the variety of the black experience on the big screen, this writer was absolutely wrong about slavery films being common. They're not. It's actually just the opposite. I'm an avid moviegoer, and I keep an eye especially on the history of films with black characters and the history of such cinema. You can count the number of American slavery movies by Hollywood on one hand, and you would probably have to cheat by including Gone with the Wind, which is not really about slavery, it merely contains slave characters. (laughs) Right. This is just a fact, not simply my opinion. There are actually far more movies about Medea than there are about America's original sin. So Medea is um, one of Tyler Perry's characters um, that appears in a lot of his movies. Nearly 20 years ago, the great current film critic for the Washington Post, Anne Hornaday, wrote an insightful article for I believe the Washington Times regarding the lack of major motion pictures that centered on the civil rights movement. She persuasively pointed out how that movement was one of the top five chapters of American history with endless possibilities of potential movies that could have been made about it, and yet Hollywood had virtually ignored it. She then pointed out in contrast the endless number of World War II films that Tinseltown had produced. Well, the same thing can be applied to slavery films. These are topics that white people, let alone black people, are not comfortable in addressing, so I can see why there have been a lack of movies. What irks me is hearing some of my fellow African-Americans make erroneous claims that we have been flooded with slavery films. 
Perhaps they are so sensitive to the subject, it makes them think there are far more movies about the institution of American slavery than there actually are. But even that doesn't excuse their overreaction that leads to misinformation. Before 12 Years a Slave, there was Amistad, which came out in 1997. 12 Years a Slave opened in theaters in 2013. That is the span of nearly 20 years in which Hollywood gave us two movies centered on the subject of slavery in our country. How exactly is that the equivalent of bombarding audiences on the topic? The most prominent tackling of the issue came not on the big screen, but on the small screen in the form of the miniseries Roots, which came out back in the 1970s. In my opinion, those who object to making any slave film that comes down the pipe, no matter how rarely, are giving Hollywood a pass as well as sending it a permission to keep ignoring that barely examined subject on the big screen. I know of Jewish people who do not want to watch Holocaust films, but I don't recall Jewish people in the media using their platforms to denounce making Holocaust films. More importantly, one or two Jewish writers are not seen as being completely representative of their fellow Jews when they share their commentary. Unfortunately, in my opinion, too many white people with the best of intentions are of the belief that the African-American voices in media that they tune into and hear speak for all African-Americans. That's just not true, although the problem is that those black voices are too limited in numbers and in diversity of thought for my liking. A recent example is this outrage towards Green Book winning Best Picture. I saw Green Book at a theater with an audience of mostly African-Americans who happened to overall be older than me. I came away thinking the film was okay, but the audience surrounding me loved the film. Those folks were so engaged, they were talking back to the screen, laughing at every joke, and gave the film an ovation at the end. I felt that was over the top, and still do, but does that make my opinion more valuable than theirs? And as I was walking out of the theater, it hit me that those people who were loving this film were old enough to have lived in the time period that the movie was depicting. Who am I to tell them this movie isn't as great as they thought it was? On Twitter, in fact, there were a lot of African Americans who expressed their love for the movie, but you would never have guessed that based on the loud folks who denounced the film and the media following along to conclude those voices spoke for all African Americans. Getting back to 12 Years a Slave, it was an autobiographical experience of a black man who took part in writing it down in a book. The screenplay for the film version was done by two black men, which included its Afro-Brit director. So I think it checks off all the authenticity boxes. Thanks for the time, H. Khan. It's a pretty convincing argument, especially the part there that really like underlines it for me is where he talks about like, Jewish people who might not be interested in watching Holocaust films, but you don't get a lot of people denouncing the creation of Holocaust films and um, just kind of comparing that um, filmic topic and, and the gravity of it, right, with slavery and kind of the reaction that that gets both from the black critical community and from white people who are nervous about you know, how to uh, engage with the subject. And so that to me was like, oh, right. Yeah, that kind of puts it in focus. Yeah, I really appreciated the the effort and the time um, that HCon clearly put into writing us this email uh, and pushing back against um, what was clearly a, a somewhat ignorant, um, although well-intended discussion from us 
I think a lot of what we said in the actual podcast still stands in terms of wanting to be careful about the exploitation of, you know, visuals of black pain and making sure that you're not doing it carelessly. Before you invoke those images, you need to make sure that uh, you're doing it very carefully. Um, And I think that totally still stands. But I'm also like, totally convinced by this argument. We actually haven't had too many slavery films. And, you know, we need more of these stories being told by black creators. Um, You know, he pointed out that there hasn't been a lot of uh, movies covering the civil rights movement. I just wanted to to highlight the 2014 movie uh, directed by Ava DuVernay, Selma, um, that does cover that topic. And I think it, you know, it goes into a lot of the the sort of like disagreements between different organizers and is, you know, like very beautifully made and super compelling. Um, And so I definitely recommend that. And so just getting back um, to this idea of sort of like, what is our job as well-intentioned white people who want to engage with this type of material without fucking up as best as we can (laughs) you know and it's it's hard right because we try and and read as as widely as we can but like h Khan pointed out there's not a lot of black voices in media and so you know what counts as diversity is basically having like one black person on your staff not multiple black people on your staff so you're like not always gonna be able to get um you know that multiplicity of perspectives um and across different age demographics um within the black community yeah and i think there's also like a pressure with online articles like you said this was um this particular article was from jezebel Mm -hmm. and like kind of all the kinja stuff like um I'll cite a lot of stuff from io9, which is part of the same... It's owned by the same company as yeah. Jezebel. It's, like, under the same media network. Yeah. And actually, like, the day that HCon sent this to us, there was an article that came out uh, on io9 about this episode that was basically, like, the, the exact same take of, like, uh, American Gods has a lynching problem. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Because, like, the author, who is the guy, um, Charles Pullman, who covers American Gods for io9, uh, is a black queer writer. And it was exactly, like, the kind of thing that HCon is talking about of, like, um, kind of black intellectual critics who are trying to create a kind of pushback against like don't depict violence against blacks and um, don't like engage with this because then it relegates us to only being victims or we're only ever slaves. We're not interesting. You know, it flattens us um, in media. I think that HCon is right though, that, that there should be more of this made. It's really something that is kind of a psychic wound in American history and we really need to grapple with it. And we're not going to, if it's not in our stories, even imperfectly. It was just funny to me that he pointed it out and then it was like, (laughs) bam, right there. I was like, holy shit. I think you're right. And I also think, right, that like our job as white people is not to like center ourselves in this conversation, right? Like (laughs) I kind of feel like 
the best thing that I can do at this point is to just listen as much as possible and understand, right, that, like, this is a conversation um, that's, like, really happening within the Black community where it should be happening and that there's a diversity of opinion and that I can be informed on both sides, but also it's, like, not my job to be super invested in this fight or, like, tell Black people that they're on the wrong side. Mm -hmm. Just be Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, I've heard this other argument and I hear your argument and I'm aware of what, you know, that there's this conversation happening. And hopefully, um, you know, some of our white American listeners and, you know, I guess white non-American listeners are also uh, becoming a little bit more aware of of this discourse and that there is a diversity of opinions on it. Yeah. And that was like the, the thing that really hit me with that article, because I think in the absence of this feedback, like I would have read that Charles Pullman article, which I always look forward to his take on the episodes. And I would have taken it more to heart and been like, yeah, American gods does have a lynching problem. But then Mm -hmm. in light of this, I was like, huh, this is, it's interesting that this is like one pole of a polarized debate. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and so seeing it that way was like a richer experience and like more valuable. So we have our other podcast, Hallowed Ground Storycast, where we do um, stories that are meaningful for us. And sometimes we have guests on talking about stories that are really meaningful for them. And the miniseries Roots has actually, it's been on my radar for a while because it's one of those things that I know is like a huge cultural touchstone in the Black community, you know, given that we're doing this American Gods podcast that is touching so much on, you know, Black culture and the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and lynching and all of that in the United States. It seems like something that would be good for us to cover over there. Mm, Um, And just like, especially because we cover American Gods, but also even if we didn't cover American Gods, it would be good for us to see. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... If there's anybody here who uh, would be interested in coming to talk to us about Roots, definitely shoot us an email. We also got uh, another email about uh, the same episode and um, the person who wrote in, uh, Jonathan, and thank you for writing in, Jonathan, informed us that actually the poltergeist in that episode was based on a historical uh, event, uh, a person who was killed in Cairo. Uh, Illinois in uh, around the turn of the century, like I think 1902 or something like that. A a man who was uh, known in the community as Froggy James. And it was just basically those few opening minutes of the episode are just like basically exactly what happened to that man where a woman, a white woman was killed. There was a very fast trial. He was dragged out of the jail He was lynched, but the rope broke. And then when he fell to the ground and was not dead, he was shot to death. The article that I read said that he was shot 500 times. Holy Um, shit. Yeah, but the white people who were there. And that um, literally thousands of white people converged on Cairo to see this lynching be done. And he was gruesomely uh, torn apart. People kept parts of his body as souvenirs his head was put on a pole like in the episode he was set on fire so like all of that stuff like came from a historical event which uh we did not know we didn't say that in our podcast 
Um, but I was kind of both interested and horrified to find that fact out. I think it's also really interesting um, that we're recording this on Thursday, April 25th. Yesterday, um, one of the perpetrators of one of the like worst lynchings in the modern era was just executed. Mm. So in 1990, um, James Byrd Jr. was uh, lynched in Texas. He was dragged behind a truck um, whilst alive until he died. Um, the person behind it, whose name I'm not going to mention, um, was just executed yesterday. Um, and you know, as someone uh, from Texas, you know, we have basically the highest, you know, rate of executing people of any state in the country. And the death penalty is typically applied in a hugely racist way and, and in a horrible way, you know, you try and execute all sort of people who should not be executed. And, and so it's, yeah, <laughs> I think everyone kind of agrees that like, well, you know, if you're going to do it, that might be the time <laughs> to do it. <laughs> 30 years but, later though. Like yeah. It's, yeah. It's a long time. Well, 20 years, right? 1998, 2018. Yeah. Oh, was it 98? I thought you said 90. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Sorry. 1998. But the other thing Jonathan said um, was, I got to push back on Mr. Nancy some by pointing out that he didn't mind losing the worship of black and brown people when he was inspiring a certain collection of slaves to kill themselves by burning down the Dutch ship they were being carried on. Yeah, and that's in response to what we were talking about, um, where he was fighting with Mr. Ibis, saying, like, why are you killing all of the black folks here in Cairo to feed yourself? Don't kill my followers. And so he's kind of pushing back here and saying that, like, Nancy doesn't necessarily have uh, an investment in living black people because he was perfectly happy to have them set themselves on fire to get something out of it. I feel like there's a slight difference maybe between sinking a slave ship to like prevent hundreds of years of suffering versus the modern day situation, which like, yes, there's a lot of discrimination and struggle, but it's like not quite living in literal servitude. I think he has a point that it's important to remember that the gods are dangerous and that mm-hmm. like we are their food on a certain level like in a particular kind of way but i was thinking about this ever since he sent it in and it made me realize that like you could read what nancy is into as like resistance because he's constantly like pushing shadow to like stop being stupid do your own thing like he tells donar like don't give your worship away like stop working for your daddy and go do your own thing. He tells Shadow, stop playing checkers with your life. And telling the slaves, go kill all of these Dutch motherfuckers and Mm -hmm. burn the ship down is a way of like, don't let yourself become a slave. Like even if it kills you, which is kind of what happens to Donar, but it's better to die than to be a slave, like in Nancy's paradigm. So it kind of fits. And then Jonathan also said, I side with you in hoping that Laura's characterization in season one was not wasted by having her retrofitted as a woman who never cared for Shadow. What worries me is that even before the Baron claimed she lied to Shadow about loving him, 
William James relayed to Shadow that he was not unlucky, he was unloved. Of mm. course, being in love with someone and caring about them can be two totally different things. Maybe he's saying that they're trying to kind of retcon season one in the way that I'm worried about, that they're just kind of textually saying there, like, no, there was never anything after she came back from the dead. She wasn't actually in love with him. It's something else that she misunderstands as love. Mm-hmm. Do you buy that? Did you see that? or? Well, I think his comment is saying not just that she's incapable of love now, that she's dead, but that she never loved him even when she was alive. I mean, I think that, that she didn't love him when she was alive. But then, Oh, you, you do think that? Yeah. But then, like, well, I, I don't know. Like, she loved him as much as she was able to. And she was just kind of pitiful at it. I think she had like a mental illness in that yeah. Yeah. somehow like, magically she doesn't have a mental illness now. Like she's still an asshole, but she has like a, an ability to like love in a way that she didn't before. Yeah. Yeah. Cause she's not just like hung up on her own depression and pain. Like I appreciate that this season is trying to like trouble that and like mess with it and evolve it. But I don't want it to retcon it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want them to say, no, actually, that never happened. Because you think in season two, they're portraying her as, like... Well, I guess we've talked a couple times about, like, is the devotion that Laura feels actually love? Mm -hmm. Yeah, is, like, her current devotion to Shadow, can we even call it love? Or is it just, like, a weird supernatural enslavement because she actually thinks he's the son? I don't know. Question for another time. Maybe in our season two (laughs) wrap-up. So before we go, I wanted to, real quick, uh, we got the finale, the season finale coming up. Neither of us have seen it. And so, like, uh, give me a prediction going in. Like, what... What do you think is going to happen? One concrete prediction that can be either proven clearly wrong or clearly right. Yeah, yeah. Like the djinn lays Salim down and, and like lays the flamethrower down on him again or something. You know, like. <laughs> oh, I totally forgot you asked me to do this. Um, it's okay. I'm going to need a second. Season one ended with the big confrontation at Easter's party. Uh I feel like the new gods and the old gods have largely been operating kind of like independently this season. Like there've been less, there's been a lot less contact between them. It's basically like since they shot up the bar in episode one, they've been completely separate. Um, So I feel like the finale has to have the old gods and the new gods confronting each other, like, coming back together in some way. Uh, The finale is going to end with the old gods and the new gods having some sort of confrontation and, like, the new gods coming out, like, clearly on top and ahead. Um, And, like, like, a big setback for the old gods. I mean, I know it was already a setback that the old gods, uh, that Sweeney took the spear, Gungnir, and put it in the horde. Mm Mm-hmm. There's going to be, I feel like Shadow's going to have, like, another badass moment, like the moment where he stabs Sweeney with the spear. The new gods are going to come out on top, unlike in the finale, where Odin, like, smote everyone with his lightning bolts and was, like, 
a super badass. I think, like, the new gods are going to come back hard. Does that good enough of a prediction? That's awesome, yeah. It's, like, a little vague, but it is more macro level than I think you were asking for. Yeah, that's definitely something that we can measure. I think that it's going to be big trouble for Wednesday, and there's going to be a moment where you're going to, like, feel a kind of decision point for Nancy where he can like step in there and bail out Wednesday or help him or like in some way kind of step in and do something. And instead he's going to look at Bilquis and be like, let's GTFO. Oh, you think Nancy and Bilquis are going <laughs> to leave together? I don't think they're going to like hook up, but they're going to like look at Wednesday and be like, See ya. Because I was going to say that might be another pivotal thing that could happen is like Bilquist actually choosing a side. I don't know if I want it to happen, but I will like I could see it happening and I would have like a huge reaction to it and would enjoy it until I thought about it. And then I would be like, I hate this. (laughs) Well, I like that our predictions are mutually exclusive. So one of us will (laughs) definitely have bragging rights over the other. There you go. Okay, well, that's all we've got for this mailbag episode. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler and visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com. And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit shadowsandshamblers.com slash contact or send an email to contact at halloweddgroundmedia.com. Um, and don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. Uh, we've picked up quite a few new listeners this season, uh, but our number of ratings and reviews has not really increased from season one. So Jonathan, all those super nice comments that you sent us in that email, log on to iTunes and put them there too. Okay. Okay. Great. That would be great. Or just hit those stars. Yeah. I'll, just give us some stars. That's all we need. production and is released under a creative commons non-commercial share alike license